And take your Bibles, if you will, and turn with me to the letter of Romans, chapter 9, as we began an interesting three chapters in the book of Romans. And really, we leave with this question that was started last week as we saw the tremendous build-up to the end of chapter 8. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And then we have this question. If that is true, what about Israel? What happened to Israel? Were they separated from the love of Christ? Well, we were in Michigan. We met a pastor who leads an IFCA church for Arabic-speaking believers. And I mentioned him er earlier, but I didn't mention his story. You see, this pastor's homeland is Iraq. When Saddam Hussein lost the first Gulf War, this pastor and his family were forced to flee from Iraq under intense persecution because they were Christians living in a part of the country Saddam believed had betrayed him. They fled to Jordan, where they lived until a few years ago, and again were made to flee because of their faith in Jesus Christ. They then were made refugees in our own country. He was a doctor in Iraq and in Jordan, and is seeking his license to practice medicine today in Detroit. The reason for his desire to do so, even though he is pastor of a church, is because he is desirous to raise the money necessary to return to Iraq with the message of Jesus Christ. Even though he suffered at the hands of his countrymen, and even though it is more dangerous today to be a Christian in Iraq than ever before, this man has a deep desire to return to his own kinsmen. That is the heart that we see in Paul as we enter into chapter 9. And it is not only the heart that we see in Paul, but it is an avenue by which you and I are able to see that the Lord's plan for Israel is not done. But we have to clarify a few things. Because there is such confusion in our world today, and so Paul gives us the opportunity to do so in this incredible book. And really... Uh, many believe that the theology portion of the book of Romans has ended at chapter 8, when chapter 8 concludes. I would disagree with that. And I would say that we're about to enter into three chapters of a theology called Israelology. And we have an opportunity to study the theology of Israel. And so as we have the opportunity to do that, I want you to understand this idea. Paul's grief over the people of Israel should be shared among you and I. Paul's grief over the people of Israel should be shared among you and I. And Paul gives us eight very clear reasons by the time we were done this morning for that to take place. And so as we prepare for this passage, we have read it already. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on the reading of His Word and the time spent therein. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You and praise You for the opportunity that we have to spend some time again in Your Word. I praise You for Your people Israel. We know that they are in rejection to the Messiah to, to this day. But we look forward with anxious anticipation of the day that they will return again into the blessings and the promises that are yet to be fulfilled to them. Lord, as we consider that question, we realize that as Christians we have confidence because you have not forgotten your people Israel. Because even though they are not those receiving the faith of Jesus Christ, that they will one day. And because of that truth, we stand in praise to you. Because all of what was said in chapter 8 is absolutely true. 
You work all things together to good to those who love you and are called according to your purposes. And we cannot be separated from you. Nothing can separate us from your love. Because those things are true and because they mean so much to our lives, we grieve for Israel. As soon, we pray, one day they will come back to you. As we know will happen according to your promises. And again, your name be glorified and lifted above all nations and above all peoples and above all kings. Lord, again, we love you and thank you for it. In your son's name we pray. Amen. The territory we burst through this morning fits into the deep-rooted soil of the Old Testament. And we could spend a tremendous amount of time back in Deuteronomy and Exodus and Numbers realizing what is taking place here. And we will spend some time there today. And we will spend more time as we move through these next three chapters. This is a picture that is of God's grace, His mercy, His sovereignty, and His perfect plan of redemption. And after the glorious buildup of last week, a question lingers. If nothing can separate us from the love of God, then what about Israel? And it will be through the tears of the Apostle that Israel's future is seen as the faithfulness of the Lord to keep His Word is revealed. So today we begin to fill in the doctrine of Israelology. And as we do so, we see Paul's broken heart. And then Paul's response. And finally, grieving for Israel. Reasons for grieving for Israel. And so let's begin this morning as we look at Paul's broken heart. Because this reveals something about the apostle we have not yet seen. This reveals something truly spectacular about what his desire is for Israel. And so he began in verse 1 of chapter 9. As Paul says this, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. You see, in order to understand this, we have to understand the heart of Paul. And there are some things in this passage, especially verse 1 and in verse 3, where we're going to have some difficulty wrapping our minds around it. And so we're going to have to faithfully dissect them to understand what is going on. Having moved through the passage that we just have been through, Paul faces a pressing question and it reveals his heart. If God is for us and no one can stand against us in separating us from the love of God, then what about Israel? You see, the Gentile mind in which Paul is writing to has got this question in the back of their thinking. They're considering this and they're wondering, okay, I believe it to be true because it is written here in the Word of God, it is given to us by an apostle of God, but what about Israel? You see, the only reason that the message went to the Gentiles in the manner that it did is because Israel rejected God. And so if nothing can separate us from the love of God, then didn't Israel do that to themselves? This is a major point of doctrinal division in our culture even to this day. And it is something that we must understand. Because in in addressing this question, Paul is going to be direct and he doesn't want any misunderstandings. That is his heart. And that is why he says this statement that he does in verse 1. Let me read it to you again, because it seems odd to have an apostle in the middle of one of the greatest epistles in the Word of God to say this statement. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. You see, Paul is revealing his heart as being innocent of any pleasure in seeing Israel's condition. And what he is about to say is going to be hard-hitting. It is going to be direct. 
and Israel is going to be in the crosshairs of some of that. And Paul doesn't want any misunderstandings. He doesn't want you and I to assume that he's taking pleasure in the condition of Israel. He doesn't want you and I to assume that God has set Israel aside. You see, he reveals that his heart is innocent of any pleasure in seeing Israel's condition. And you and I kind of understand this, because let me put it in the negative sense. When your enemy takes a hit, you might feel regret for them, but in our facial expressions, at the moment that we hear about it, we capture something in us we don't like. Our corners of our lips go up. Like, yeah, they, oh, no. They did deserve it, but I feel bad for them. You see, we have this moment, this twinge of saying, you know what? I am kind of glad of their calamity. I'm kind of glad that they're going through this. It's about time the Lord taught them a lesson. You and I understand that, and it may come as somewhat of a surprise to see our lips quickly creep up into a slight grin and then disappear. But Paul is saying this. He's saying, I take no pleasure in those who have persecuted me. I take no pleasure in the calamity of Israel. I take no pleasure in where they're at. And so don't get any misunderstandings. What Paul says in such a powerful statement as verse 1 is that there is nothing in Paul that takes delight in the fact that Israel has temporarily been placed aside. There is nothing in Paul that takes joy. And he says, and besides that, I testify in my, in my, in my conscience by the Holy Spirit. He goes, everything's been washed clean. I don't feel that calamity. I testify according to Christ and in the Holy Spirit. And so Paul is making a very powerful statement. And then he expresses his sorrow in verse 2. And we come to a sorrow. Verse 2 says this, that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. What his conscience and the Spirit is testifying, not only that he is innocent, but that he has great sorrow and unceasing grief in his spirit. Paul's heart is further revealed in the greatness of his sorrow and the unceasing grief in which he feels. The word for unceasing means constant, never diminishing, Paul was in a constant state of bearing the weight of Israel's rejection of the Messiah. One commentator put it this way. He said, The spiritual struggle that Paul is feeling is a consuming burden. It preys upon his mind. It weighs upon his heart. His grief is incessant. It is with him day and night. He cannot escape it. It disturbs his peace and undermines his hope. His state of mind concerning his brethren after the flesh may be compared to that of a person who watches a loved one wither away and is helpless to save or provide a remedy for them. That is what Paul is feeling. That is what is weighing on his heart, as it is no doubt with tears he pins these next three chapters. This is sorrow. This is the crushing weight which never diminished in the heart of Paul. So what does Paul say? What is his response? Verse 3. Verse 3 says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brother and my kinsmen according to the flesh. You see, Paul makes an impossible wish. And it is impossible because of the truth of chapter 8. Because the truth of chapter 8 said nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. 
if you know Christ as Savior. So given what we've just studied at the end of the last chapter, we find this verse very surprising. I did when I came to it. It is joyously clear in chapter 8 that we cannot lose our salvation. It is secured to the very character of our God who will not default and is more powerful enough and is more than powerful enough to see it through. And that was the joy that we celebrated last Sunday. The completion of Paul's statement is impossible. You see, Paul makes a statement that in English, construction is clumsy somewhat, and yet clearly very powerful. What Paul is saying is, if it were possible, if there was even a remote chance that I could give up my security in Christ for the sake of Israel, I would do it. I would do it. The completion of that statement, though, is impossible, and Paul knows that. This is a hyperbole. He's, he's illustrating a point. He's illustrating how deep his sorrow is for Israel. The believer does not and cannot be separated from Christ, and Paul knows that. And the sacrifice of a sinful man will not guarantee the salvation of even one other sinful man, and Paul knows that as well. He knows that the only thing that will impact the people of Israel is the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And that is what he wants to proclaim to them. We see the heart of Paul burdened for the sake of his own people. Willing to give anything up if they would only believe. And yet Paul was the Gentile or was the apostle to the Gentiles. And yet he has this burden for the people of Israel. We embark on a week before us where our countrymen... Our fellow citizens will all mingle in one place. We call it the fair. My question for you is, does your heart grieve for your kinsmen that don't know Christ? Does your heart have great sorrow? So much so that you're willing to give anything up for them to hear the gospel message and to respond. Does your heart beat for the salvation of their souls. With the passion and the zeal for which Paul's beat for his countrymen. You know how it feels when your child injures themselves in their grueling agony. You would give anything to trade places with them. I remember the week that Katie ran down the hall in our church and bonked her head on the stairs and you could see her skull. I remember the pain that she felt. Not that day, because she was in shock. But the next day, as it was sore and tender. As a father, I'd do anything to take that pain from her. You know the feeling when a loved one is caught in the balance between life and death, suffering in the last throes and grips of cancer. You would do anything to remove their pain and take it to yourself. We understand the feeling that Paul feels. But do we feel it when we walk past our neighbor who does not yet know the Lord? That, uh, that neighbor who yet is in the throes of life and death. He has never responded to the gospel or she has never uh, heard a clear presentation of the gospel. And you are walking past them and you know their spiritual condition does your heart. Feel that same way. 
That's what it was for Paul. That's what it was for Paul. Paul took no joy where Israel was at. In fact, he, with great sorrow and consuming grief, mourned for Israel. And then, besides his impossible wish, we see his concern for Israel. The end of verse 3 announces who these ones are, that there is such a burden for Paul. And we already know, we've already moved ahead to that point, but we need to make it clear. Because they are Paul's brethren, fellow kinsmen in the flesh. And in that statement is found Paul's passion and his problem. His passion is for his brethren. His problem is his brethren. And he's going to illustrate even eight more reasons in a moment for that. But Paul's passion is for Israel of whom he is a member of. The problem is that there are only brothers in the flesh and not brothers in the Spirit. Their identity which brings them together is only lasting in this life, just as it is for your kinsmen at the fair. It'll cease when life's first, last breath is taken. But Paul's passion is fervent even at a terrible price. Keep your finger here in Romans chapter 9. I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24 and 25. 2 Corinthians 11, 24 and 25, Paul is speaking about what has taken place to him. And he says, are they servants of Christ? In verse 23, uh, I speak as if insane, uh, insane. I more so in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes, three time, 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I spent in the deep. Paul says, at the hands of the Jews I was beaten. I was stoned. I was beaten again. I was struck with a rod. I was shipwrecked because of them. And yet I grieve for their salvation. I grieve for them to come to know Christ. Not only this, take your uh, finger and turn back to Acts chapter 23. As if those things weren't bad enough, Acts 23 reveals something else for us. Acts 23, 15 and 16, it says, Now therefore, you and the council notify the commander to bring him down to you as uh, though you were going to determine his case by a more thorough investigation. And we, for our part, are ready to slay him before he comes to this place. But the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, and he came and entered the barracks, and he told Paul, the Jews were going to kill, assassinate Paul. And yet Paul knows about it. And yet he pins the great sorrow and deep grief that he has for Israel. This is a mark of the follower of the Lord. This is what motivated this Arabic-speaking pastor to go back to Iraq. This is what motivates him to tell the gospel message, even though it means most certainly 
that he's going to be abused for the sake of Christ, persecuted for the sake of Christ. And not only is it evident today, it was also evident with Moses. It is powerfully demonstrated by Paul and Moses because we see the same kind of thing after the golden calf with Moses where he petitions the Lord and he offers himself in place of Israel. Of course, right after that, he crushes the law. So we know he's not perfect. But this is the mark of the follower of the Lord. Our application has been our fellow countrymen, but this is only an application, and it is really only a side note. The thrust of these three chapters is the people of Israel. And the thrust of these three chapters is that God is not through with them. There is more to come. Yet while we wait, we not only grieve for our countrymen, but we also should grieve for Israel. And Paul now gives us eight privileges which belong to Israel, and yet they still reject it. And this grieves his heart, and it should grieve ours as well. The grieving over their lost state is over the incredible blessings and privileges that were uniquely theirs, yet Israel reaped no benefit from this spiritual advantage. And so Paul embarks on eight reasons. And he begins here in chapter four, or uh, verse four of chapter nine. He says, Who are Israelites? To whom belongs the adoption of sons, and the glory and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises? Who are the fathers? Uh, whose are the fathers? And from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. And as we prepare to enter into verse 4, we need to understand something. because, And I wanted to isolate this word specifically. Notice what Paul calls his fellow brethren. Israelites. Israelites never is and never will be used to refer to the church. It is only used and perpetually used to refer only to the children of Jacob. Those are the Israelites. And what Paul says here is they had eight tremendous blessings that gave them spiritual advantage. They rejected them. But what he's about to say later, as we move through these three chapters, is that Israel, the children of Jacob, will again receive the blessings and the promises that were given to them. See, God's not done with Israel. But we have to understand Paul's grief before we can understand the blessings and the promises that are going to return to Israel that are theirs and are solely theirs and never will we participate in them. And so in understanding that, we understand that there is a division of doctrine and this is something that is important. And we're going to continue to study it in the weeks to come. But we recognize that when he says Israelite, he's referring to one specific group of people. And you are not among them if you are not a child of Jacob. And so in understanding that, we understand now he's moving into these eight blessings. And the reason I spent time on that is because the first one is adoption. And we looked at adoption in chapter 8, verse 15. You and I who know Christ are adopted as sons. But Paul says the Israelites were adopted. The Israelites were adopted. In fact, keep your finger here again and turn back to the book of Exodus. 
And we're going to get a very clear demonstration of this as Moses stands before Pharaoh. Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. And this is uh, Moses responding to God's call, preparing to be sent out to go see Pharaoh. And this is what the Lord says to Moses. It says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Again, we read those uh, very similar words in the book of Hosea and in other places in Scripture, and especially as we move through the Old Testament. We must recognize that God adopted the nation of Israel as His son. Now, what does that mean? Especially in light of understanding Romans chapter 8, verse 15. This does not mean that every Israelite was saved. Obviously, uh, given where Paul is at, that is not the case. But it refers rather to Israel's special relationship with God, unlike any other nation ever. You and I have an adoption as sons. We've been given the blessings and the privileges of being called a child of God. And that is individually. But God gave those blessings and privileges, the majority of those blessings and privileges, to Israel as a nation. That is why God chastens Israel. That is why God chases after them to bring them to repentance. That is why He disciplines Israel. Because He adopted them and they are to receive the blessings of being sons of God. Now, we should understand that Paul is making a clear distinction between those adopted as believers and those adopted who are Israelites. Israelites refer only to the people of Israel, the sons of Jacob, and doesn't refer in any way to the church anywhere in the whole of Scripture. And so we recognize that Israel as a nation held a special place in a special relationship with God. Now, that wasn't any spiritual blessings uh, as far as their salvation. It gave them way to do so. It gave them the information they needed. It helped them see the evidence that God truly existed and was calling them. But it didn't buy their salvation. It didn't pay for their salvation. And so we recognize that adoption of Israelites is different than adoption uh, in chapter 8, verse 15. You see, the church wasn't adopted. Individually, we were adopted. But the people of Israel were adopted. They were adopted and received the blessings. They received the joy of being called children of God. And you and I, as in this dispensation, receive the blessings of being spiritual children of God, but they receive the earthly blessings of being children of God. That is our first word. The second word, Paul says, and the second blessing that they received uh, we find here in verse 4 as well, he says, Who are the Israelites to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory? This glory refers to Israel's incredible blessing of having the Shekinah glory of God, His actual physical presence with them in the wilderness. Paul is saying, You had the physical presence of God with you in the wilderness. No other nations had that. What a blessing. Then he uses the next word. And the next word being here in verse 4, and the glory and the covenants. And this refers to the covenants that God made with Israel, such as the Abrahamic, the Davidic, the Palestinian, and the New Covenant. 
All of these covenants were and are eternally belonging in the possession of Israel alone. We are about to enjoy some of the benefits of the new covenant. The blessings of the new covenant. But the new covenant was not made for you and I. It was not made to you and I. It was made to Israel. And it is Israel's. And it will forever be Israel's. God made no covenants with the church. He made them with Israel. And they are Israel's eternally. And that is what separates Israel as you being unique. One of the things. And one of the other things is the law. The law was uniquely Israel's peculiar possession. Moses reminded the people of its importance back in Deuteronomy. Turn back there with me for a moment. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 through 9, as Moses is relating to the people the importance of the law and reminding the people of its value. And he says this in chapter 4, verse 5 through 9. He says, See, I have taught you the statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as to as is the Lord our God whenever we call on Him? Or what great nation is there that His statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I have setting before you today? Only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life but make them known to your sons and your grandsons. You see, the law was meant to reveal the need for the Messiah, but it was also intended to reveal the power of God in the people of Israel. That was a possession peculiar to Israel. Theirs alone was the law. And then Paul says this back in chapter 9, verse 4, he says, and not only the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple services. You see, Israel was unique among the nations in serving the Lord in the tabernacle and in the temple. Paul seems to be alluding to the sacrifices, the offerings, the various cleansings, and the other means of worshiping that were uniquely Israel's and which boldly demonstrated the price of righteousness. If anybody understood what righteousness cost, it was Israel. And it was because they were given the privilege of being the ministers in the temple and in the tabernacle. Paul says, yet, you rejected it. You know the cost. You know the blood that was shed. You know the smell. You know the fire. And yet you rejected it. Not only were they involved in the services, but the last one here in verse 4 is the promises. All the promises that God has made to Israel, God will fulfill. All other nations receive their blessings through Israel, yet Israel is given the promise of the Messiah's reign and the promise of blessings which flow through that reign. And that's yet to come. But they had it all. They had all those promises. They knew God had promised that to them. They knew of the Lord's faithfulness. They knew that those promises belonged to them, and yet they rejected. Moving into verse 5, and those, and whose are the fathers? The fathers point to the patriarchs and the promises that were given 
through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And those are distinctively Israel's. They belong to the people of Israel. And this is the boast, actually, of the religious leaders in the Gospels. They understood this so much that they boast about it. In fact, they're quoting from the Talmud, which says, Israel lives and endures because it supports itself on the fathers. And in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, they boast about it. And yet they missed it. They missed it. And then the keynote one. The keynote. Comes here in the middle of verse 5 and it says, And from whom is the Christ? According to the flesh. Sorry, I got all excited and forgot all these. I'll let you catch up and I'll get them through yet. Covenants and law. Paul is, is saying that it is through the line of the Israelites that Christ humbled himself to add humanity to himself. Christ will soon bring the fulfillment of all the promises, the blessings, and the covenants. Christ, who is the Messiah promised in the Old Testament, He came through the line of Israel. And yet Israel missed it. They rejected Him. And so Paul says, I have great sorrow because they missed it. Let's catch up here a little bit more again. They missed it. We should grieve for the people who had so much spiritual blessing and yet rejected the message. Even today our heart should have great sorrow for the Israelites. But we are about to enter into the next few verses. And we're going to see Israel's continued rebellion against God and yet a theme is going to be developed. And that is the emphasis to the question. You see, the question asks, what about Israel? Well, I can't answer it in five verses. Paul didn't answer it in five verses. He spent three chapters doing so. And so we're going to spend three chapters doing so. But if you do not understand chapter 9 within its context, and you do not understand chapter 10 within its context, you will skip over chapter 11 and miss it. And in chapter 11... We have so many tremendous blessings. In fact, those who believe in replacement theology have taken chapters 9, 10, and 11 and said they're just a parenthesis in the book of Romans. We can kind of skip over them, skim them, because we don't really, don't really need them. And they read verse nine or chapter 9 and they say, see, this is what I mean. We know all of this. They presuppose God has removed His blessings from Israel when Israel has removed themselves from the grace for a moment but they will come back because God will bring them back. And we will get there in chapter 11. But in the meantime, we recognize that Israel had all of these blessings. They had all of these eight spiritual advantages. They had the adoption. They had the glory. They had the covenants. They had the law. They had the temple service. They had the promises. They had the fathers. And Christ came through them. Yet they missed the gospel. Paul says, because of that, I grieve for them. I grieve for them because they did not accept. But by the time he's done in chapter 11, he will reveal that nothing can separate even the Jew from the love of Christ. Nothing can separate them from his great faithfulness. Because they are not separated now, except by their own doing. 
And one day soon, God will bring them back as He is faithful. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, as we prepare to close and prepare to take this communion table before me, we recognize that it is through the people of Israel. It is because of the people of Israel that we are able and available to partake in this table. It is because you came through them. It is because of the blessings that you promised to Abraham that all nations of the earth would be blessed because of him that we are able to partake. In light of that, we grieve for your people Israel. We know you are not done with them yet. We grieve for them as they struggle and search and uh, in vain pursue their own ways. But we recognize that one day very soon, you will call them back to yourself, having chastened them, brought them through again and other wanderings of wildernesses, and bringing them back to full restoration, to where your name will be fully implemented with all the promises, the blessings, and the covenants coming to fruition. Lord, we anxiously anticipate that day. But our hearts grieve with Paul for Israel. We grieve because they had such spiritual advantage and yet they didn't believe. We grieve because it is so difficult to minister among them today. We grieve because even though they are spread worldwide, many continue to reject. We also grieve for our fellow countrymen, our kinsmen, of whom we get to fellowship with this next week. I pray that as we do so, our heart would have great sorrow and unceasing grief for their lost condition. That we would share the gospel with them, that they would respond. And that we would lift joyously your name above all other names. Lord, as we consider Israel in these three chapters of the book of Romans, challenge us, cause us to understand that We are a grafted-in branch, and Israel is the native vine. And cause us to recognize that your will will be accomplished. And may we be faithful in ministering while we can, where we can, according to your will. Lord, we love you and thank you for it. Prepare our hearts now as we prepare for this observance before us, that your name would be exalted there as well. In your son's name we pray. Amen.